up there a lot this spring, two weeks, one week, and I was home for a few days and back up there for two and a half weeks just lobbying, talking to Congress and telling how bad this is. But the debt ceiling deal means for a controversial natural gas pipeline. For Sunday, June 4th, this is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Eric Deggins. Coming up, my conversation with media tycoon Byron Allen on the importance of black ownership in American media. You work for a rich black man, and I have to be concerned about the narrative. And that's what happens when you have diversity and ownership. And we continue our special series on what it takes to build a life of meaning. Author Catherine May describes facing life's uncertainties by tapping into a childlike sense of enchantment. There's that time when everything feels heightened and everything feels very possible. And I think we almost deliberately shut that down as we get older. First, news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Janine Herbst. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky says at least 500 children have been killed since Russia launched its full-scale invasion of Ukraine last February. On another subject, he told a newspaper that Ukraine's military has now made the necessary preparations to launch a long-promised offensive against Russian forces in his country. But Zelensky didn't mention a start date. NPR's Greg Myrie has more. President Zelensky said the offensive was likely to be a protracted operation and progress on the battlefield could come at a heavy cost. But he added, quote, we are ready and we strongly believe we will succeed. The Ukrainian leader made his comments in an interview with the Wall Street Journal in the southern port city of Odessa. The Ukrainian offensive, which has been publicly discussed for months, is widely expected to target Russian forces that have seized territory in the south and east of Ukraine. In what's seen as a prelude to the Ukrainian offensive, the Russians have increasingly come under fire well behind the front lines. Greg Myrie, NPR News, Kyiv. NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg is calling on newly re-elected Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan to agree to Sweden's membership in the alliance. Derry Schultz has more. While Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan waved Finland through in March, he's kept Sweden waiting due to allegations Swedish laws are too accommodating of Kurdish groups the Turkish government considers enemies. The PKK is officially designated a terrorist group in Europe, but supporters living in Sweden still hold anti-Erdogan protests. Speaking in Ankara, NATO chief Jens Stoltenberg said freedom of expression must be respected and urged Erdogan not to let those opponents derail Swedish membership. The organizers want to stop Sweden from joining NATO. They want to block Sweden's counterterrorism cooperation with Turkey and they want to make NATO weaker. We should not allow them to succeed. Turkish and Swedish negotiators will meet later this month. For NPR News, I'm Terry Schultz in Brussels. Last week was all about fiscal policy and the debt limit, but as NPR's David Gurr reports, this week monetary policy is front and center. Now that President Biden has signed the debt limit deal into law and the U.S. has once again averted a default on its debt, something the Treasury Department said could have happened on Monday, Wall Street's focus will shift to the Federal Reserve's next two-day meeting later this month. In recent speeches, several Fed policymakers indicated their preference is to pause, to stop raising interest rates. But the latest jobs numbers may change their calculus. Although the Fed has been hiking rates aggressively to fight high inflation, it's still well above the Fed's target. And the U.S. economy added 339,000 jobs in May, way more than economists expected. David Gura, NPR News, New York. And you're listening to NPR News from Washington. 
This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Josie Guarino. The T's general manager is shedding light on a newly created role for the agency. Phil Eng announced at the last MBTA board meeting that it needs someone to focus on monitoring the conditions at all T stations. This follows such incidents like the one in March at Harvard Station, where a piece of falling ceiling debris almost hit a T-rider. Ang made his comments on WCVB's On the Record today. Obviously, we have many stations across the system, but those, those t- that team will be there to support this person in terms of um, the environment of our stations, the safety of our stations, and to bring together all the different functional groups that support addressing those in a more timely manner. Eng says this person would also be a point of contact for customer feedback. A friendly reminder that overnight lane closures in Boston's Callahan Tunnel go into effect tomorrow night from 11 p.m. until 5 a.m. and will continue weekly Monday through Friday during those low traffic times. It's for ongoing tunnel work. State highway officials say lane closures will also be in place on I-93 southbound at exit 17B to Logan Airport. The closures are anticipated to continue through most of June. A documentary that features former Boston Mayor and U.S. Labor Secretary Marty Walsh and other locals will open at the Coolidge Corner Theater for a one-time showing tomorrow night at 7.15. It's called Americond. The documentary follows the life of a Boston man who once lived on the streets but is now a homeowner. The film exposes the challenges of finding affordable places to live and the diminishing middle class. Besides Boston, the documentary will be seen in other major cities like New York and L.A. before it becomes available on streaming platforms. Boston's weather has set a new record. The Blue Hill Observatory's records show that last month was the sunniest May ever recorded. The month clocked in at nearly 330 bright sunshine hours. It was also the fourth sunniest month ever recorded at Blue Hill since 1886. WBUR supporters include Melville Charitable Trust, committed to ensuring all people have a safe, stable, and affordable home that allows them to thrive. Information about ways to prevent and solve homelessness is at melvilletrust.org. The federal government finally managed to raise the debt ceiling to avoid default and potential economic catastrophe at the 11th hour. But the bill which achieves that, dubbed the Fiscal Responsibility Act, does a lot more than just lift the debt limit. It also expands work requirements for some benefit recipients ends the moratorium on federal student loan repayment, and fast-tracks the long-stalled, controversial Mountain Valley Pipeline across West Virginia and into Virginia. NPR's Dave Mistich takes a look at that natural gas line, the controversy surrounding it, and why it's included in this legislation. Maury Johnson was in a bit of a rush earlier this week. He was in the middle of a four-hour drive, barreling down the road from his home in Monroe County, West Virginia, toward Washington, D.C. Just Can you just hang on a second? Uh, I, I'm gonna, I'm, I can't stop at this guy's driveway. The 62-year-old former teacher and farmer had planned on a relaxing Memorial Day to kick off the summer. Instead, Johnson learned that legislation to lift the nation's debt ceiling included a section that would greenlight the Mountain Valley Pipeline. So he packed up again and got back on the road. I've been up there a lot this spring. 
two weeks one week, and I was home for a few days, and back up there for two and a half weeks just lobbying, talking to Congress, and telling how bad this is. First proposed in 2014, the more than 300-mile Mountain Valley Pipeline, or MVP, stretches across the heart of West Virginia and into Virginia. It cuts through a national forest and through Johnson's property. Work on the MVP has been off and on since 2018, as landowners and other opponents have brought a number of court challenges against the project. Johnson says the construction that has been accomplished has caused all sorts of problems. Just myself, I have documented 240 or more water resource problems all across the state, all the way from Mobley, West Virginia, where this thing starts, all the way to the top of Peters Mountain on the border of Virginia and Monroe County. A spokesperson for Equitrans, one of the five companies behind the MVP and its majority owner, says the pipeline has been subject to an unprecedented level of legal and regulatory review. But they're excited about this legislation to raise the debt ceiling and finish the pipeline. The first person they thanked by name, Democratic Senator Joe Manchin. Nothing has ever been through a review process that we've been told in modern day has been reviewed as much as this MVP. Manchin has been pushing to get this thing done for a long time. He says it's about securing energy independence, and that's why he was hopeful it would be included in the debt ceiling deal. I've talked to all the negotiators on both sides of the aisle, Kevin McCarthy and his team, and the president and his team. Yes, and I said, you know, on that, this is something that can put this much production this quickly into the line. Russell Chisholm, managing director of the Protect Our Water Heritage Rights Coalition based in Newport, Virginia, says the American public shouldn't have to choose between a national default and the MVP pipeline, which has been plagued by environmental concerns. I think Joe Manchin likes to point to this as some sort of regulatory bureaucracy and red tape that has been slowing things down. The project never should have been approved. Manchin isn't the only West Virginian championing the MVP. Republican Senator Shelley Moore Capito is also hailing its inclusion. She noted the debt limit bill will redirect all the court challenges, putting those decisions solely in the hands of the D.C.-based Circuit Court of Appeals. After many, many attempts in the court to shut the entire thing down, it's time to ring it to a close, and this agreement brings it to a close. The court Even though the debt ceiling looms over the pipeline fight this time, the passage of the bill doesn't lessen the controversy in the Appalachian Mountains. Opponents of the MVP say they'll continue their fight against the project, legally and otherwise. Dave Mistich, NPR News, Morgantown, West Virginia. The Darfur region in western Sudan is a vast area that's been traumatized by decades of genocidal violence. Now, it's suffering again. While Sudan's capital, Khartoum, has been the epicenter of the recent conflict between two warring generals, those fleeing from Darfur have shared accounts of the brutal and underreported fighting there. Thousands of people have made their way over the Sudan border to neighboring Chad. That's where NPR's Africa correspondent, Emmanuel Akinwotu, brought us this report. It's an important listen, but I do want to warn you, it includes some graphic descriptions of violence. I've just arrived at Gungu, where about 10,000 refugees have spread around in clusters across a vast area in essentially the desert. It's about 110 degrees. It's scorching. People are trying to find shade, making makeshift shelters with branches, sheets of fabric and plastic, or clustering under the few trees that still have enough leaves to provide shade. Gungu is just one of several camps that have sprung up along the border in Chad, where ordinary life has been destroyed or put on hold for thousands of Sudanese people. 
When the UN first arrived here a few weeks ago, there were only two to 3,000 people. Now that number's tripled, and the numbers coming across the border are rising every day. The speed of the refugees coming across the border gives an illustration of just how intense the fighting is in Darfur, the region to the west of Sudan. And the violence has been brutal. Communication has been scarce, with phone networks down. But the accounts of refugees I've spoken to offer a glimpse of it. This is Ahmad Ismail, a 55-year-old farmer from Darfur. And while a crowd of refugees gather to listen, he speaks in Masalit and tells me about the loss that led him here. He left Sudan before the conflict reached his town and fled with almost all of his family, everyone except for his 20-year-old son. When someone told him his son was taken by fighters, he took his donkey and rushed back to Darfur. He found him hiding in their abandoned home and was relieved, but then relief turned to horror at what his town had become. Mystery was virtually empty, he tells me. Entire homes had been burnt to the ground or looted. He blames this on who he calls the Arabs or the Janjaweed. That's the name of the militia that evolved to become the Rapid Support Forces, who are now at war with Sudan's army. In the space of a few weeks, much of the town had been completely wiped out. They rode by several bodies covered in blood, lay strewn along the roads from Mystery to the Chad border. They had gunshot wounds, and some of them were still alive. So he and his son carried three of them onto their cart and took them back to Gongur. Ali Tahir Mohammed is 55, and like Ismail, he's also from Mystery. When he heard that fighters were approaching, he and 21 members of his family fled with nothing but the clothes on their backs. He tells me the Janjaweed were just killing people, anyone, a woman searching for herbs, children fetching water. And etched in his mind are the atrocities he's witnessed in Darfur, not just recently, but over several years. I saw with my own eyes, he tells me, the killings in my town. In 2021, they came and burnt it down and killed about 70 people. The atrocities in Darfur have a long history, and so do the many actors. The army and the RSF are now at war, but in the early 2000s, they were united, fighting on the same side under the direction of Sudan's former president, Omar al-Bashir united in a genocidal fight to crush a rebellion in the Darfur region. That conflict and cycles of atrocities since then sparked a huge refugee crisis. And now we're here again. Aisha Youssef works for the Red Cross, and she tells me in French what she's witnessed in the camps. Several cases of trauma, children who escaped alone. So the stories that have really stuck with me are the children without any adults, who came by themselves. Yesterday, I met a one-and-a-half-year-old who came with her big sister, who's only 13 years old. A queue of refugees line up with buckets and bowls at a water tank bought by the World Food Programme. The help is vital, but not enough. As the number of refugees rises, so does the pressure to support them. Before this conflict, there were already 400,000 refugees from the Darfur War in Chad, one of the poorest countries in the world. Now there are almost half a million, and resources are stretched. 
the UN want to move the refugees from the border areas to camps further inside Chad. But it's a slow and difficult process. And while the new arrivals wait in Gungur, the sound of weeping spreads through the camp. There's no way to call their relatives and loved ones from Darfur, but sometimes the news trickles in. These women have just found out they've lost a father, a grandfather. So they sit under a tree and comfort each other. From a high slope in the desert sand in Gungur, you can see the milky outline of hills in Darfur. But to return there feels like a distant prospect for many. Ismail says he'll never go back. Everything he built has been lost. He says he's not been able to think about the future since he arrived in Chad. But the most crucial thing is that he's safe. He tells me, back there, there are a lot of armed groups, armed men. But here, since I arrived two weeks ago, I haven't seen anyone with a gun. Soon the rains will come, making access to the border more difficult and an exodus for refugees more fraught. And on both sides of the border, history repeats itself. This conflict has left a troubled region in more turmoil and a new generation of refugees prepare for life in camps just a few kilometers away from home. Emmanuel Akinwotu, NPR News, Farchana, Chad. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Clouds stick around for tonight and all day tomorrow with temperatures in the low 60s. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Soaring Hawk Meditation Center, celebrating the present moment with a new exhibit on mindfulness located in Littleton, Mass. More at SoaringHawkCenter.com. And Gore Place and the Jane Austen Garden Party enjoy food, games, and costumes in a setting fit for the author's famous novels, July 9th in Waltham. GorePlace.org. It's 518 coming up at 6. It's the New Yorker Radio Hour. WBUR supporters include Russell's Garden Center, a shopping experience with annuals, perennials, organic fertilizers, unique gifts, toys, and more. A spring tradition for 146 years. Route 20 Wayland. And BU School of Social Work. Top-ranked part-time MSW programs in Bedford, Fall River, Worcester, and Cape Cod. BU.edu slash SSW. Headlines. Hundreds of thousands marched in Poland's capital today, angry over what they say is the conservative government's erosion of democracy. Today is the 34th anniversary of the first democratic elections in Poland, after decades of communist rule. In India, officials are investigating whether a possible signal failure was to blame for the train derailment that left more than 270 people dead and hundreds more injured. It's not clear whether the error was human or technical. And Chuck Todd says he's leaving Meet the Press after nearly a decade of moderating the NBC political panel show. He will be replaced by Kristen Welker. 
I'm Janine Herbst, NPR News in Washington. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Progressive Insurance, home of the Name Your Price tool, so drivers can see coverage options at Progressive.com or 1-800-PROGRESSIVE. Price and coverage match limited by state law. From the Wallace Foundation, working to develop and share practices that can improve learning and enrichment for young people and the vitality of the arts for everyone. Ideas and information at wallacefoundation.org. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Eric Deggins. Lately, it seems like a lot of black celebrities are getting involved in media ownership. Actress and TV producer Issa Rae. Hey, I'm Issa Rae, and you may know me from my web series, The Misadventures of Awkward Black Girl, or my TV show, Insecure. And I am the CEO of Hooray. Charlemagne the God, host of The Breakfast Club. What if there was a network where a lot of my favorite black voices could be heard? That would be something, right? Not just one show that moves culture, but a network. Well, I am proud to announce the Black Effect Podcast Network. Drop one of the clues bombs to that. Rapper and record company executive Diddy. Today is a very, very big day. I'm here to announce my new cable network, Revolt. I'd first like to say thank you to Comcast and NBC for recognizing the importance of minority ownership in cable television. I think it speaks to something that people who have been studying the space of Black media have understood for a while, but ownership matters. Cheryl Thompson-Morton is the director of the Black Media Initiative at the Craig Newmark Graduate School of Journalism at City University of New York. There's one thing to have an outlet that is focused on the community, um, but it's another thing to have the decisions all the way at the top be informed by people from the community. She says to understand the importance of black ownership of media now, we need only look at how black newspapers and radio stations many years ago humanized and contextualized black life and black people. In looking at black American life, the black press has been the second most important institution in black life historically, after of course black religious institutions. Um, and that is because black press held power to account. Um, black press was where we also got to see that our communities were born and died and, you know, had normal life events just like any other community um, that were often left off the pages of mainstream or white-dominated outlets. And so my team recently uh, aimed to do a study that looked to see what is the role that Black media plays in today's society. Um, and we saw that even in this period, that Black media really talked about topics of importance to Black communities more often, that they humanized subjects more often, um, and that they connected current news events to the historical fight for justice.
While there's buzz about recent media moves by black celebrities, the vast majority of radio and television broadcast stations, 93%, are still owned by white people. That's according to a recent FCC report on diversity in media ownership based on data from 2021. Even BET, formerly known as Black Entertainment Television, one of the first major cable networks founded and operated by black people, has not been owned by black people for over 20 years. But earlier this year, when owner Paramount Global hinted the company might sell BET, several well-known African-American entrepreneurs expressed interest in buying it. That roster includes Diddy, Tyler Perry, and comic-turned-media mogul Byron Allen. Allen has acquired a variety of broadcast and online outlets for the past few years. Some of them, like the Black News Channel, are targeted towards black people, but others, like the Weather Channel, are not. In building my company, it was real simple. I'm building one of the world's largest media companies, if not the world's largest media company. And I happen to be black. Byron Allen is the founder and CEO of Allen Media Group. He says his company represents 90% of black-owned media. He's been very vocal about the importance of black owners in media, but one obstacle he's identified is a lack of business from some big advertisers. He says it's a problem he's been fighting for years. So what I said to white corporate America, who conveniently excluded black media, I said, we represent approximately 14% of the population. We should be 15% of your ad budget. The extra one or two points is for the 150 years you did not do business with us. And trying to get advertising dollars for Black-owned media spaces isn't just a battle Allen fights at corporate negotiating tables. When I talked to Allen, he told me about his ongoing fight with McDonald's to hold them to account for their promises about advertising with Black-owned media. So listen, you know, let's talk about McDonald's. McDonald's takes in about $100 billion a year out of 39,000 stores, and a lot of it is out of the Black community. McDonald's is spending approximately, a, we believe, a billion dollars a year in advertising, a billion. And Black-owned media, when I filed the lawsuit, was getting less than $5 million, when we believe they're pulling up about $40 billion in sales out of the Black community. So I filed a $10 billion lawsuit against them using the Civil Rights Act of 1866, Section 1881. And then the Civil Rights Act, it is stated, which was put on the books as the first Civil Rights Act in this country to protect Black people in this country, we would have economic inclusion in contracting, commercial and government. And I use this lawsuit and it has not been dismissed. That's a big deal. That's huge. That's historic. And I believe that it was, uh, it's not only historic, it was absolutely necessary because it gives us transparency so now uh to 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 be to be fair i do want to mention that um when your latest lawsuit was filed uh mcdonald's released a statement and they said in part quote byron allen files baseless lawsuits as part of a public smear campaign against our company to try to line his pockets we will not be coerced by these tactics and will defend ourselves vigorously so uh, i just want to ask you what's your response to uh, mcdonald's and other critics who might say you're just trying to pressure this company uh, with bad publicity into buying more advertising from your platforms Great question, and thank you for asking me that question. Their opinion of me doesn't matter. 
I don't expect you to have a good opinion of me because I'm holding you accountable. The reason they put that statement out was because of the second lawsuit. And in the second lawsuit, we use the California Civil Code of 1711 that basically says if you make a pledge, you have to live up to it. Now, there's a great article in the Washington Post where they talk about in the Black Lives Matter movement that white corporate America pledged over $50 billion to Black America and has lived up to less than $1 billion of it. So in the second lawsuit, all I said was you pledged to spend 2% of your budget, your ad budget with Black-owned media, and you have not lived up to it. So um, I also want to ask you, you went on Bloomberg and you talked about the possibility um, that you might buy Tegna, uh, which is a company that manages 64 TV stations across the country. What's the strategy in your interest in, in this company? Uh, how likely is it that you might make a play to buy it? And, and, and how would Tegna sort of add uh, to the uh, media company and the platforms that you already own? Tegna is a phenomenal company. It's uh, the largest portfolio of ABC, NBC, CBS, and Fox affiliates around the country. They do extremely well in local news, and local news is very important to me. Uh, this is an asset that we're very interested in. We're in that space. It is a phenomenal category for us to be in. We love and appreciate local news. It matters. And we are very focused on being number one in the news space. Now, what's interesting to me, um, you you own lots of non you know black focused media platforms. How do you make sure that the companies that you own are fair uh, and and free from racism and prejudice? And in particular, if you're going to buy a bunch of Techna stations, uh, will you be able to ensure that their local news coverage, for example, is free from these problems? Absolutely. I mean, that goes without saying. Uh, most people who, who deal with me know who I am. Uh, I'm very clear. I'm very loud. I'm very proud. And they know that I take action and I take immediate action when I see something that I believe is not right. Um, there was a young kid, young black kid who was murdered. He was uh, playing his music in the parking lot and a white guy had checked into a hotel. And he didn't like hearing that music in the parking lot up in his hotel room. And he went down and he shot and killed the young black kid. Now, I happened to own a television station in that market. And uh, I called up the person at the time who was running my stations. And I said, I want you to make sure that our news department goes and do a story about that young black kid and his family and humanize him. because." Media has a way of demonizing Black people, especially Black men. He didn't have a gun. He's dead. I want you to show America who he is. And the, the guy who worked for me at the time said to me, you know, it was an awkward moment for him because he had been in the business many, many years. And he had worked for a number of wealthy uh, white families who owned very large news operations. And none of them had ever called him to get involved with a local story, more or less suggesting I was interfering because there's that wall of news and you don't call up and you don't interfere. And I had to explain to him in that moment, over your 40 years in this business, you've worked for very rich white men. 
who never had to care or be concerned about the narrative because they were rich white men. Today, you work for a rich black man and I have to be concerned about the narrative. And that's what happens when you have diversity and ownership and that matters. Now, I've never shared that story publicly. Well, we, we appreciate you sharing it with us. Uh, just one last question that I want to end with. And, um, you know, again, it's the question I have to ask, to be fair, because um, there will be critics out there who will say, uh, you know, Byron Allen uh, often speaks up when he wants to buy something or when he's interested in something. He'll talk about being interested in BET. He'll talk about being interested in Tegna uh, and that that publicity helps him achieve what he wants. But is there substance behind it? So I'm just going to ask you, what would you say to critics who would say, um, you know, you can talk about wanting to do these things, but, um, you know, how do we know that you're going to achieve the things that you say you're interested in doing? Well, to be honest with you, I don't know. It's a competitive process, right? So it was a competitive process to buy the Weather Channel. I bought it five years ago. I beat out some uh, pretty smart folks and we bought the Weather Channel and We've increased the top line revenue in the EBITDA. Um, I was in a competitive process to buy, you know, a billion dollars worth of big four network affiliates. I've been in a competitive process to become the largest provider of first run television shows to television stations. It's a competitive process. Um, there are folks who want to buy Tegna. They may get it over me. There are folks who want to buy BET, VH1. They may get it over me, and that's okay. There's no shortage of deals, but the deal has to be right. The deal has to make sense. And what we strike on, we strike on what makes money and makes sense. And just because we don't get it today doesn't mean we won't own it tomorrow. But I will guarantee you, we will always be the biggest and the best. Byron Allen, head of the Allen Media Group, thank you very much, sir. Thank you, my friend. Continued success. Thank you. Cynthia Weil has died. As part of a songwriting duo with her husband, she wrote some of the biggest hits in pop music. We'll have more on her long, incredibly successful career on tomorrow's show, but for now, we'll leave you with one of our favorites. Thank you, Cynthia Weil. And take it away, Dolly. Here you come again Just when I've begun to get myself together You waltz right in the door Just like you've done before and wrap my heart round your little finger Here you come again Just when I'm about to make it work without you You look into my eyes and lie those pretty eyes And pretty soon I'm wondering You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Now it's time for some tunes to set just the right vibe for your Sunday. NPR's Felix Contreras is here to share what's on his new music playlist, and it happens to be one of his favorite artists. Guitarist, composer, arranger, and producer Yasser Tejeda from the Dominican Republic. 
Yacer Tejeda is from an island with very distinct traditions, and he has absorbed them, he's mastered them, and now he expands on those traditions with jazz, rock, and his own musical palette. He's an innovator, and innovators always turn my head. His new album is called La Madruga, and this track is called Tu Ere Bonita. Now what you're hearing is a mixture of things. His guitar parts draw on the guitar tradition of the folk style known as bachata. Now bachata is a super popular form of music in the Latino communities these days, but Yacer Tejeda takes it back to its roots, which feature intricate guitar picking that draws on the polyrhythms of Africa. And if you listen closely, the guitar parts intertwine, producing sort of a rhythmic counterpoint. He uses traditional bachata guitar chords, but throws in some jazz now and then. And get this, he does all of that over this pretty fast merengue beat, which is completely different. It's another African-based popular form of music in the Dominican Republic. It's a deeply thought out hybrid, expertly performed and very danceable. And check out this tasty guitar solo. Okay, this track is called La Vereda. It starts with a combination of traditional chants and rhythms, and it cruises along nicely, and then this happens. Check out the hard rock voices and attitude. But to me, the rock guitar does not sound out of place. In fact, the tone and the rhythm add to the drama of the song. And this is what I mean when I talk about how he innovates on tradition. Then at the end, he does a musical shout out to another guitarist who used Afro-Caribbean rhythms to innovate a new sound, a guy named Carlos Santana. At least that's what it sounds like to me. Check this out. And every now and then, he even slows it down. Ay, mira, yo me Amor Congo is the name of the track, and it's a love song wrapped in a mellow beat, and mellow being very relative compared to the rest of the record. And it also includes a guitar solo that reflects a bit of the bachata guitar tradition and parts that sound like it could be part of Fela Kuti's Nigerian band, as well as his own distinct approach to guitar playing. Check this out. Special mention has to go to co-producer Quinn McCarthy. It's their first time working together and on La Madrugada, they have both created a masterful musical statement that incorporates jazz, rock, folk music, traditional and contemporary African music, all on top of rhythms from both countries of the island of Hispaniola, the Dominican Republic and Haiti. I know what I'm queuing up after the show now. Felix Contreras is the co-host of the podcast Alt Latino from NPR Music. You can listen wherever you get your podcasts. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR and online at WBUR.org. Coming up at 6, why so many experts are concerned about unregulated artificial intelligence. 
That's on the New Yorker Radio Hour, beginning at 6 on 90.9 WBUR and anytime on the WBUR app. Turn your old vehicle into new news. Support the programs you love by donating your car or boat to WBUR. Details at WBUR.org cars. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by The Huntington, presenting the first American production of The Lehman Trilogy. Winner of the 2022 Tony Award for Best Play, this marvel of theatrical storytelling is an intimate saga about a family and a monumental expose of unbridled capitalism. Starts June 13th at the Huntington Theater. HuntingtonTheater.org. I'm Janine Herbst with these headlines. NATO's Secretary General is calling on Turkey's newly re-elected president to allow Sweden into NATO. Jens Stoltenberg says the Swedish government has done everything necessary to get Turkey's approval. Saudi Arabia says it will cut the amount of oil it sends to the global economy by 1 million barrels a day to shore up the sagging price of crude oil after two previous cuts failed to do that. And at the weekend box office, Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse took the top spot, opening with a massive $120 million in ticket sales. That's more than triples the debut of the 2018 animated original, and it's the second largest domestic opening of 2023 so far. I'm Janine Herbst, NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Bank of America, offering access to resources and digital tools designed to help local to global companies make moves for their businesses. Learn more at bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness. And from Plymouth Gin Distillery. Plymouth Gin is imported from England's southwest coast, distilled using a blend of seven botanicals, including juniper berry, coriander seed, and citrus peel, Plymouth Gin, since 1793. This is NPR. It's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Eric Deggins, and I'm going to hand things over to NPR's Rachel Martin for another conversation from her series, Enlighten Me. I didn't know what was under the train tracks, but that was the point. The track was elevated on top of a small bluff that ran parallel to West Yellowstone Highway, a road that ran right through my hometown, the one that made it possible for tourists to pretty much bypass Idaho Falls altogether as they made their way on to actual destinations, Jackson Hole, Wyoming, and Yellowstone Park. My family drove that road all the time, on our way to our dad's law firm or the art center where my mom worked, or to pick up KFC to take to our grandparents' house on Sundays after church. And every time we did, I would glue my face to the window of our blue GMC Suburban. Because if you weren't looking closely, you were going to miss it. An opening in the bluff under the train tracks. Like a half moon shape with stones framing the edge. It seemed to have no discernible purpose, but every time I caught a glimpse, I could see light coming through from the other side. Light that was dancing off of a cross-stitch of thin trees with light green leaves. The delicate kind of green of something new in the world. I can still see it so clearly in my mind. It felt like the door to a secret world where all kinds of wood nymphs and good fairies lived. And I imagined that if I could ever get inside, I was going to be wrapped in the most beautiful light 
and feel totally safe and understood. When I was a teenager with a driver's license, I often thought about just driving over there and walking through the opening once and for all. But of course I didn't, because I knew the second I got up close to my fantasy, it was all going to fall away. Even in adulthood, I was pretty good at conjuring a sense of enchantment. I could stare up at the clouds and see magic in how they move. I could feel some sort of wisdom in old forests or something mystical in things others just called coincidences. But the pandemic knocked it out of me. We were all locked down, stuck at home, and the kids were crying and they needed me to teach them how to read and how to do fractions. And then I was crying too and weeks stretched into months, stretched into years. And any previous ability I had to find enchantment in the everyday evaporated into the COVID-infected ether. So when I picked up Catherine May's newest book and read this bit, it felt really familiar. I've lost some fundamental part of my knowing, some elemental human feeling. Without it, the world feels like tap water left overnight, flat and chemical, devoid of life. I'm like lightning seeking earth. Uneasy, I carry the prickle of potential energy in my limbs, ever deferred from the point of contact, the moment of release. Instead, it gathers in me, massing like a storm that never comes. I lack the language to even describe it, this vast, unsettled sense that I'm slipping over the glassy surface of things, afraid of what lurks beneath. I need a better way to walk through this life. I want to be enchanted again. It's like we were all locked away for two plus years, and when it was all over, we entered the world again, and we thought we could just sort of pick up where we left off. But it didn't work that way. We can't go back again. We're different now. It's like we have to relearn certain things we took for granted. Catherine May's newest book is all about this. It's appropriately titled Enchantment. Awakening Wonder in an Anxious Age. And when I tell you that I dog-eared almost every page in this book, I am telling God's honest truth. I didn't know how much I needed someone else to validate what I was going through. The sense that I had lost my curiosity, my imagination, my ability to make meaning. Do you remember being enchanted as a child? Like a specific image, event, mm. conversation that mesmerized you in that way? Yes, and in fact, the the memories from childhood are actually very small things, but they felt so important to me. So I used to spend a lot of time sitting in my back garden, smashing rocks open with a hammer. <laughs> I mean, we didn't have iPads in those days. Like, life was hard. <laughs> very enchanting activity. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it, yeah, it probably says a lot about my childhood. But, you know, like every, I don't know, 10th or 20th stone would have like a little geode of crystals inside it. Ah, and that was absolutely magical to me. Yeah. I could uncover this little tiny cave that was millions of years old and which nobody had ever seen before. And there were loads of small things like that. And I guess there's that time when everything feels heightened and everything feels very possible. And I think we almost deliberately shut that down as we get older. You did not grow up in a religious household, is that right? 
No, not at all. Um, and in fact, probably the opposite of a religious household, if that's possible. <laughs> like a, a household that felt very resistant to the idea of organised religion. Mm -hmm. um, and which equally thought that people with more vague spiritual beliefs were a little bit cringeworthy. So I, I do worry what my family thinks of me these days. Um, <laughs> but I <laughs> I did go to um, church schools. Like it's, it's really common in the UK to go to church schools. Um, and I always actually loved the religious bits of my church schools without believing in it. The, the notion of God is complicated, right? But mm. um, for many of us, it's the word, the term, the idea that we use to mm. connote something bigger. What does that mean to you? Oh, I'd love to be able to answer that question. If only <laughs> this huge word, this huge three letter word, God, which I've never felt a connection with in any definition that I've been given. And yet, as I've gone through life, I've also felt like there is something there that I can't define and that nobody else's definition does it for me. And I begin to think that it's the the questing after that that's the point of this, actually. Like, rather than the knowing, rather than the certainty and the solidification of this idea, that the thing that is most enlightening to me is that constant search for connection with this ineffable thing. For me, I wouldn't even say being. It's like a force that I sense sometimes. Yeah. Do you pray? Yeah, I do. And I always have, actually. It's something I learned to do when I was at school. And I did it by rote then. But I've never stopped. And, I, really? and for the longest time, I haven't known who I'm talking to. <laughs> <laughs> question like I went to you know a religious school growing up too and prayer was kind of the deal like mm. you learned how to do it there were like very specific things that you were supposed to say or you know in our tradition it was like a Presbyterian church school mm. uh you just freeform you know you just dear god this is what's on my mind <laughs> gonna have blah, a nice blah, little chat with like you super cash <laughs> yeah yeah um as an adult um, I haven't figured out that language. It, mm. it, I will admit that it feels like silly to me. Like I can't get over my own self-consciousness about it. Yeah. Yeah. You have faced some of that too? Oh my goodness. So much of that. It was something I decided to kind of work on about a decade ago, actually, that I, I realized I had this urge in me to pray. And yet I felt silly about every single instance of trying to do it. I, You know, like, I'd learned all these formulas for saying a group of words together, and it didn't make any sense to me at all. And I also, I was really troubled by how I'd been taught to pray, which was kind of to ask for stuff in lots of ways. Right. And I began to think of it as entering a state of prayerfulness rather than as, of praying was an act of communion and an act of kind of trying to share what was in my mind and my heart in as honest and direct a way as I could. Because to me, what this greater being could do was know me in a way that no one else could know me. 
Can you tell me about the well? Because that mm. anecdote feels prayerful in a way. <laughs> so I'm lucky enough to live near Canterbury, um, which is an ancient site of pilgrimage, and it's part of a far greater pilgrim's way that stretches all the way across Europe. Uh, a friend of mine told me that she'd found this well, this, this pilgrim's well, that she'd been visiting, and she took me to see it. And I didn't really know what to expect, but it's actually quite a forgotten little well. It's, uh, you know, it's a thousand years old, probably, um, and it's hidden behind a giant overgrown rose bush. <laughs> um, and so we crawled through the bush. I lost my coat in the process and came to this beautiful stone surrounding with a, a little pool at the bottom and uh, a, a well was springing up into that pool. So every now and then you'd see bubbles coming up into this beautiful still pool of water. And then there were several steps down to that pool. And that was such a, I don't know, a magical moment for me because the thing with those little set of steps was that you could only go down there alone. And as you went down the steps, you felt your sense of intention changing. Like our ancestors have worked out how to create this perfect little environment for reflection and literal reflection because you get down there and you see your face reflected in the pool as well as all of nature around you as well. And there's something about the quality of that place that, that you knew that other people had come down there in the same frame of mind as you had, but over centuries um, and yeah, it's a it's an absolutely beautiful, magical place, and I hesitate to tell you all about it in case you all go <laughs> you there don't too. Have to give me the GPS coordinates. <laughs> oh, all right then, maybe just for you. <laughs> but what was especially profound for me in reading that part is the responsibility that you have, that the individual mm. has, to make the meaning mm. right. Like, no, the well won't do it for you. I'm reading now. This is from mm. the section of the book about this. Once yeah. you're there, you're on your own. It offers no clues for what to do, no liturgy or ceremony. At the bottom of those steps, you must confront your own yearning to make meaning. The water reflects only mm. your troubled face. You are the one who fills the well. And that felt um, like a little sad to me. <laughs> I mean, empowering, yes, great. I get to create my own meaning. But like, really? I <laughs> <laughs> Damn it, I just wanted to tell me what to do. <laughs> yes, Catherine. Yes. Sometimes you do nope. want the well to tell you or to make all that is, you know, enigmatic, mysterious, complicated, difficult, clear <laughs> in its reflection. But that's the oh, whole point, but, right? Is that it's sort of But a, Rachel, yeah. You know you don't like that already, I right? Know. <laughs> I know. <laughs> It's true. All of your contact with religion so far has told you that actually you hate that bit. You it's hate true. being told what meanings it's to make. It's true. Yeah. 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 No. But that is it's, And us. that's that's the change that I had to undergo and that I, I do think loads of us would benefit from undergoing is this, this dropping of wanting to be told the answers because they're just not there. There are no answers. Yeah. And simple answers quickly turn into horrible generalized strictures on our lives as, as soon as we start taking them in. Yeah. And 
the uh, the learning for us is to sit with mystery and to be able to get comfortable with not knowing and not understanding and feeling a little lost quite often and going out and looking for spontaneous truths because actually there's very few universal ones. Before I let you go, can you tell me about the moon shadow? Ah, yes. I love this story. Yeah, so I didn't realise that there is a regular schedule of meteor storms happening above our heads all through the year. And so I went with my family to a dark skies zone in the UK where I was most likely to see a certain meteor storm. These are designated areas where you can't have artificial light. Yes, that's right. I thought I had a really good chance of seeing these meteors. And what I found instead was a supermoon. And the supermoon was so bright that it blocked out all other points of light in the sky. (laughs) (laughs) But what it showed me instead was Mm. my own moon shadow. I'm not sure I really realised that they were real. And... I was so enchanted by this incredibly fragile apparition of myself being cast by the moon, like a shadow within a shadow. It was a shadow on tonight, you know. And it made me realise, I guess, you know, exactly what I've just been saying, which is that we rarely get the answers we're looking for. We often get a completely different answer about a completely different thing. Mm -hmm. And seeing my own moon shadow was magical to me completely magical and to play in that you know to play with my own shadow just like a child might do and I yeah I had no idea it was out there waiting for me (laughs) the book is called enchantment awakening wonder in an anxious age it's written by Catherine May Catherine what a pleasure to talk with you about these things thank you so much oh thank you that was so lovely 